Dotnet Rocks episode 666 with guest Steve Smith. Recorded live Wednesday, May 25th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for your .NET edumatainment. What's up, Richard? Well, I'm in Amsterdam, for starters, and I just heard my favorite hockey team, the Vancouver Canucks, win the Western Conference Final so they can go on to the Stanley Cup. I'm in a pretty good mood. That's awesome. And you know what else was good about last week? What's that, buddy? Uh, no worldwide earthquakes, fires. Yeah. Yeah. Death and destruction. And I think everybody's still, we're still counting all the people, make sure they're all still here. Maybe a few disappeared. Yeah, it's funny we're talking about this on this particular show. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I man, wasn't going to go there, but if you started it. Uh, I was so, uh, I've always been interested in the power of belief in humans. Right. And uh, I have actually written a song for Mr. Camping, and I will talk about that later. Actually, you know, there's there's three albums coming out, four, four albums coming out that I'm producing just about at the same time in July. Wow, you're busy. One of them's a Carl Franklin solo album. One of them's a Franklin Brothers album. One of them nice. is a Salvo album, which is my band, and the other is a Chris Castle album. Yeah, we'll have places online where people can go and listen and download and buy stuff. And, and I'm hoping my .NET Rocks army out there is going to support us. Because, you know, there's got to nice. be something that you like. You bet. All right, man. Let's get into uh, Better Know Framework. Excellent. Hey, Richard, you're in Amsterdam, aren't you? I am in Amsterdam, yes. What are you doing over there? Uh, doing a little uh, infrastructure architecture for uh, a multinational Oh, man. Yeah, you know, I did that last week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today's uh, class is system.configuration.configuration. I cool. love redundancy, redundancy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the system.configuration.configuration is actually a class that represents a config file. And uh, okay. you've seen this in ASP.NET. If you haven't, um, this is essentially the way that you can read your config file app settings in ASP.NET. I mean, that's what it's used mostly for, but it's really uh, great. I mean, it's got a connection strings property that gives you mm -hmm. access to connection strings that you put in your config file. So it, it sort of standardizes on a, on a convention, and it's just built right into the class. And there's a great example of it in the documentation, if you go to the MSDN right. documentation, so you don't have to dig around for people's config files to figure out how to use it. And it just adds a little syntactical sugar on top of the existing config stuff that we know. And uh, there it is. .NET 4. And that's all you got to say about that. System.configuration.configuration. Richard, man, who is talking to us? Uh, grabbed a comment from show 663. This is from Jeff Whiteledge right off the website. And this was the show about the WPF Extended Toolkit. 
And mm-hmm. Jeff says, uh, what's with all the love for masked edit controls? Mm. I'm not at all surprised that Microsoft omitted them from WPF. In fact, I can't think of any application for Microsoft that even uses such a thing. In my opinion, masked edit controls are pure evil. They are difficult and frustrating to use, preventing the user from doing what he or she wants to do for little purpose. They are the enemy of globalization unless you want to keep a database of 250 phone and zip code formats. It's better to just let the user type whatever they want and then parse it later. Otherwise, great show. Well, Jeff, and I'm, you know, I could go on with great co- uh, a discussion about mass edit controls, but I don't need to because Billy Hollis answered Jeff's comment and they actually had a discussion back and forth. And if you want to see this, go to the .NET Rocks website. It's show 663 and you can see a really interesting conversation about managing mass edit controls with internationalization. I can, uh, I can see his point. So, uh, dude, our website's doing a cool thing. Yeah, it's great. That's what it's for. It's all good. Yeah. Get to get a little and, face. And the real reason to use comments rather than emails is we actually get more conversation. Right. And then everybody can join in the conversation. So, Jeff, thanks very much for your comment. And we'll be sending you out a mug. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, criticisms, you name it, go ahead and write a comment on the .NET Rocks webpage. Well, our guest today uh, is Steve Smith, who's going to talk about uh, performance stories. Steve is a senior architect with The Code Project and CTO of Lake Quincy Media, which he co-founded in 2005. He also founded and continues to run ASPAlliance.com, a popular resource for Microsoft programmers. He's a Microsoft Regional Director, an ASP.NET MVP, an INETA speaker, and an ASP Insider. He's written or contributed to several books on ASP.NET and related topics and is a frequent speaker at industry conferences such as Dev Connections and TechEd. Steve also founded and organizes the Hudson Software Craftsmanship Group in Hudson, Ohio, where he and his wife Michelle also own office space and she manages their agile consulting company, NimblePros.com. And may I add, he is not only a judge on Speaker Idol, but a former contestant. And winner. Yeah, former winner. That's what I mean. Former contestant and winner. Will you welcome Steve Smith? Thanks. Hey, Carl. Hi, Richard. It's been a while since I've been on the show. It has. Yeah, um, in the 300s, I think. That's a while back. 368 on the transition to go. entrepreneur, breaking away from the man. And, that's and, right. Uh, Steve, you're definitely an entrepreneur. You've got as long a list of companies you're involved in as I do. Yeah, although I don't, I don't own and run them all now. I, I, uh, went the employee route, so I work for the code project these days, but, uh, but I still have, uh, my hand in a few businesses. Sure. So we're talking about performance stories. Are these stories that, uh, come from your particular experience or things that have been shared with you or both? Well, these are all from my own experience. I thought I'd sort of talk about some, uh, performance stories from hell for, uh, this particular show. Or non-performance stories, maybe? <laughs> usually where they start yeah yeah if it, if it wasn't slow in the first place it wouldn't make a story yeah that's right no i know richard's got a, a lot of experience on the performance end of things and it's always been uh, near and dear to my heart as well so i thought it would make a good topic for the show and i've had some uh some excellent feedback on my blog about some recent uh things i've posted kind of documenting how i go about analyzing something for performance and so I thought there might be some uh, tips and tricks to share with, with the listeners as well. Let's start with the biggest horror show. Why not? 
Come out swinging. Go big. Let's start big. Oh, what's big? Uh, how about one where I uh, kind of screwed up an app that was running super fast and then uh, figured out why <laughs> and fixed it? That was a that was an interesting one that took me a while to figure out and involved a lot of uh, looking through crash dumps and things like that because I didn't think that I'd changed anything that affected the performance. What kind of app was it? So this is for uh, an advertising server that's online and serves up banner ads. And uh, a lot of my experience and performance it relates to that ad server because I first wrote it for ASP Alliance back probably 10 years, more than 10 years ago in classic ASP. And the latest version of it is running on .NET 4 on a, uh, on a web farm. Uh, and I still, you know, am actively developing the software for it for uh, Lake Quincy Media. Okay. The uh, the ad server actually serves up uh, on, on, during the peak time during the day, you know, upwards of three or four hundred requests per second. So it's it's wow. fairly uh, fairly resource intensive. Fairly, you know, performance is important, and it also is running on literally thousands of different websites and needs to be quick so as not to impact the, the user experience on any of those sites. So both scalability and performance are critical for this particular application. How many servers are you running on to, per, to serve 400 a second? Uh, it's only running on, uh, right now, three front-end web servers in the, in the web farm. Nice. And I, and I found that generally about 100 requests per second is real-world what a server can push out. Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. I mean, for... For a server that's doing real work with, you know, interactive users pushing data back and forth, uh, I'm sure the yeah. numbers would be smaller. In our case, most of the time when we're serving up an advertisement, it's a very, very small request. So um, right. even though it's a very busy application, the actual front-end ASP.NET application is only comprised of about, you know, three URLs that get hit, one that serves the ad, one that r- renders a click, and a few other helper ones that are, are, come into play sometimes. So that definitely helps the, the scalability numbers there. Sure. But we're jumping back to an older version of this, right? Yeah. So this was uh, goes back to about a year ago. Uh, made a change with uh, with a contractor, and we decided that we, as part of some other uh, changes, we were adding some features. We refactored how we were doing caching. And, of course, caching is uh, one of my favorite features of ASP.NET, so we had a bunch of caching throughout this app. And so we refactored it to, to basically take advantage of the repository design pattern, and we applied what I would call the cached repository pattern. Uh, But we made one minor mistake, and it took a while to figure out what that was. And the issue (laughs) boiled down to the use of SQL cache dependencies. So, Steve, maybe we need to dig into the repository pattern and and consequently the cached repository pattern. What exactly are you talking about? So the repository pattern is a, a basic data access pattern where instead of making some call to uh, the data access code directly or maybe calling a static helper method to, to get access to your data, you use an interface to represent the, you know, the store where your data is and then call methods off that interface. So, for instance, I might have an interface called, you know, I add repository with uh, a method like get by ID that would let me pass in, a, you know, an integer ID and get back a particular ads data. Um, you know, presumably from a, a SQL Server type database, but potentially from anywhere, depending on how I implement that interface. Now, within sure. that repository, you could write your code such that it had caching logic in it, so that when when the request came into that repository, 
it would, you know, generate a cache key based on the ID that you passed in, and it would check the cache to see if that thing was already there, and then it would do some locking, and then it would go and fetch the uh, the record from the database and do some more locking, and then it would eventually, uh, after it had the data from the database, store it in the cache, and then if the if check succeeded, and, you know, you actually had the data in the cache to begin with, you would just return that. Right, so at the end right. of the day, you end up with you know ten or fifteen lines of mostly boilerplate code, where only two lines of code in there are interesting in terms of you know getting the data, and the rest of it is all boilerplate caching logic. Right. Right. So the uh, the cache repository pattern basically segregates the data access from the caching, and so you you make it so that your interface that does uh, your data access is literally your repository, and then you implement that same interface as a cache. Uh, instance. So in my case, I might have a SQL add repository instance of the iAd repository. Right. And then I would write a uh, another implementation of that interface, and I might call it the cached add repository. And within the cached add repository, I would uh, reference the SQL cache repository, and I would do all my caching logic, all that, you know, if it's in the cache, return that stuff, uh, in the cached repository only. The nice thing about this is that it follows the single responsibility principle. Now each class right. is only worried about, you know, one thing. In the case of the repository, it's only worried about the data access. In the case of the cached repository, it's only worried about the caching logic. And then if you are using something like an IOC container, like which is an inversion of control container, something like Unity or Structure Map or something like that, you can easily mm-hmm. decide whether or not you're using caching at a repository level by just deciding whether you want to use a SQL repository or a cached repository instance of that interface. Now, I remember using a SQL cache dependency class in ASP.NET where you essentially have some cache data in a set, you know, out in a cache. That's a, I think, I can't remember. I'm trying to remember. I think it was a singleton. And then anytime uh, from a stored procedure or from a trigger, actually, when that data changed, your 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 trigger could actually set something that caused that cache item to be invalid, and then it would go away and restart itself. I think that's how it worked. It was a, it's been a while since I did that. Am I am I on track? Yeah, you're close. I think you're. There's actually two versions of the SQL cache dependency feature. And and you kind of have both of them together there. Okay. The one I am using is using a, a polling technique, and that's the one that involves triggers. Yeah. And you can use that with any given table in SQL Server, like I think it's version 2000 and up. Uh, it was first introduced in ASP.NET 2, so it's been around since uh, 2005. Right. Um, but the other version that only works with SQL Server 2005 and above is actually a push notification style, and that one allows for row-level uh, SQL cache invalidation, but it has some limitations on the types of data that you can use and, and the types of queries that it works with. Mm. So the uh, the polling model is a little simpler, requires a bit of setup up front, and it only allows for table-level invalidation. Um, and, and that's actually the one that I'm going to be talking about here with this story, because that's the one I've been using. Uh, and it, it works very well. Okay. So in this case, we, we did our refactoring, and we didn't change the behavior of the code any. So we just took some caching logic that was all baked into our data access logic, which wasn't following the repository pattern at all when we started. And we split it up, and we put the data access in the repository, the caching logic in the cached repository, and we used uh, interfaces that we thought made sense. And 
the uh, the one thing that we had in in how we set this up is we created a, a function interface that took in a cache dependency, which is a, a you know a type on system.web.caching uh, that we would expect to have as a as an actual parameter when we went to make the call to get the data from uh, from the cached repository method, right? It's, uh, okay. it's a little challenging talking yep. through this without without yeah, screen to put on. But here's here's the long and the short of it. Okay. The the server started having major issues where there would be tremendous amounts of of cache trims, which is where the the system decides that it needs to purge uh, cache items out of uh, out of memory because it's it's experiencing memory pressure. Okay. And those are bad. Right. That's something you can watch with performance monitor. Yeah. And if you see cache trims taking place, uh, you've got issues because you want those to stay at zero. Yeah, you've got ASP.NET so stressed out that it's throwing stuff out of memory. Yes, exactly. It's cleaning up. Um, but is it also enlarging the heap? No, I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, typically by that point, the heap's as big as you've got for memory. Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's already at its limit. In uh, if if you just watch not even with Perfmon but just with Task Manager on on this particular uh, server to see the behavior, what you would see is it would just be slowly growing over time. Maybe over two minutes, it would expand from the base level memory footprint of the web app up to some maximum, which was close to uh, 90% is the default uh, configured amount mm-hmm. of the uh, the application memory space. And then the app would just grind to a halt, and the uh, all the all the entries that were in there would get dumped out, and you'd see the memory just drop, you know, hundreds of megabytes, wow. like uh, falling off a cliff. And then, uh, and then that pattern would repeat. So it was sort of a stair step uh, or sawtooth pattern of, of memory. Yeah. Have you seen stuff like that, Richard? Yeah. That, how fast was the cycle, Steve? In this case, it was about every two to three minutes, but it depended on the, the actual server and Jeez. how much RAM it had. Holy cow, Yikes. dude. That's fast. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of grinding. Yeah, it was pretty bad. So it turns out that these, uh, these SQL cache dependency objects are, are really cool. But they have uh, a bit of overhead when you create them, because every single one of them actually makes a call out to SQL Server to say, hey, am I configured on this particular table to do this SQL cache dependency? Mm-hmm. Right. And our, our cache hit ratio with this app is upwards of 99%, which, which most apps that use output caching or, or cache API stuff are going to be in the high 90s. Um, so it's only once in a blue moon that we actually need to go out to this the database to get the data. You know, most of the time right. we're just using the cached version because it doesn't change very often from second to second. Um, so in this case, on every single request for the data, because of the way we constructed our function signature, we were having to pass in an actual SQL cache dependency. And of course, we right. abstracted that out to a factory, and it was you know in its own method. But we were calling that factory to get that dependency and passing it into this operation, whether we needed to hit the database or not. So even if we yeah. weren't writing to the cache, we still had to have this parameter to pass in. Which means you're effectively hitting the database every time. Yes. Um, not, and not actually just to hit it for to get our data, but just to do a check to see if caching was enabled. Because of the way we constructed our, our function signature, we were hitting the database every single request for the data, even if we weren't writing anything to the cache or reading anything that we cared about from the database. We were just hitting the database to see if caching was enabled on the tables that we were using. Right. 
and it's, this wasn't immediately apparent to us because it was that's an internal call inside the cache dependency object. Yikes! But once we tracked that down, it made the uh, the problem became easy to solve. Essentially, we took advantage of the the new functional uh, types that are available in .NET. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they were introduced in three or three five, but you know, funk of t. Right. So instead of actually having a parameter of cache dependency, we just had a parameter of func cache dependency, where it was some method that would return a cache dependency. And then inside our code, when we did, in fact, need the cache dependency, which was only when we were writing to the cache, we would execute that function and get back the cache dependency that we needed. We sort of uh, we reversed the logic so that we weren't getting the thing uh, up front. We were just passing in essentially a factory method that would let us get it later. And that gave you control over what that actually was. Yeah. Right. It made it so that we'd only use that cache dependency uh, in the rare case where we were actually getting data from the database and storing it in the cache, which is the only time we right. needed it. Um, and that, that completely eliminated the problem. And we... We had, in our original code, that's how we had been doing it, right? We were deep inside of an if statement where we had already determined that the item we were looking for wasn't in the cache. We were fetching it from the database and instantiating our cache dependency and then inserting it into the cache. And that only occurred in that tree of the if statement. Uh, an unintended consequence of our refactoring is that because of the, the way we parameterize things, we'd moved that work so it was happening outside that that conditional. And that's what was killing performance. It was something that slipped by because all our tests passed. Everything still worked. Um, and in fact, the servers were still pretty fast. They were just working a lot harder. Um, so it took a little while before we were able to track down that this was the cause. Wow. And these are the sneaky things that happen inside of, it only shows up under load, right? It, it works correctly and it even works reasonably fast. It's only when you throw 100, 200 requests a second at it, finally you see the weakness in what's going on. What was it that, how, you know, when you were spelunking in there, when did the thought occur to you to use funk of T? Well, that was actually pretty quick uh, as a solution, I, I think. You know, the real, the real time consumption was trying to figure out what the heck the server was doing. Right. Uh, and this, was, this involved, you know, taking memory dumps and, and looping in Microsoft support. And, and once we looped in Microsoft support and got a ticket open, you know, in hindsight, that was something that we should have done a lot sooner. Hmm. Uh, but it hmm. wasn't something I'd ever done before, to be honest. And they were able to very quickly look at the, the memory and say, you know, you're spending all your time on these SQL cache dependency instantiations. And I was like, really? Because uh, that wasn't even on my radar. Wow. Um, but they were able to uh, to diagnose the memory dump from the server very quickly. Wow. The Funk of T approach, uh, I don't think that was even necessarily my idea. That was uh, another dev I was working with. But it worked very elegantly because it let us still pass around essentially the same parameter. Right. But in passing the type itself, we just passed a, a Funk of that type. And all we had to do in our code to change it was, it was trivial. Instead of you know actually using the parameter, we would just execute the parameter where we needed it because we were only using it one time. Yeah, that it is brilliant, actually. Uh, a, just a way to easily insert something by changing a data type, and you're be, being able to get control of your code that way. Very cool. Very clever. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. 
If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side -side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So, Steve, I want to talk a little bit about the SQL cache dependency approach. How often do you change ads? Well, they only tend to change uh, because of the way the tables are structured. The, the tables mm -hmm. that are uh, dependencies don't change all that often. I mean, we might uh, set up, you know, a dozen or, or maybe on a, a busy day, uh, you know, several dozen new ads. And every time one of those gets created or changed, that will touch the table and result in that uh, that cache dependency firing off. And so we'll right. hit, we'll have base hits at that time. But when you're talking, you know, millions of requests per day and dozens of, of updates to the table, it, it we've never even seen a, a blip in performance as a result of that. Right. Wow. Very cool. What you don't want to do, and it's it's worth mentioning, is if you are using that that table. Uh, version with the polling, um, you don't want to put cache dependencies on tables that just change constantly. Like we have a table that tracks the the activity, uh, you know, every time an ad is recorded, right? And it's a, a huge table that that stores all of that that data. And if we were to put any kind of a cache dependency on there, it would do nothing but completely uh, send off notifications that you know every instant that uh, it was updated because it gets inserted to about you know 100 times per second. Right. Right. So, yeah, data that changes, uh, it's going to change. And when it changes, you needed to instantly change the cache, but it isn't going to change that often. Otherwise, you're going to be compressing and expanding your memory quite often. So that that's an interesting story, Steve. What uh, You got another one for us? I do. So, so not too long ago, I was brought in on the board of a uh, an event here in Ohio called uh, Stir Trek. And Star Trek's a, a one-day uh, developer conference that's actually held at a movie theater. Have you guys heard of it? At a movie theater, huh? Yep. No. What's the stir? So the first Star Trek was uh, sort of a, um, a remix event, um, but they didn't end up using the remix brand. And the, the first movie, they, they, they coordinate the event with uh, opening day of a movie. And, of course, the first movie was the new Star Trek movie that came out three years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the whole mix thing, they, they went with Stir Trek because uh, they were being clever that way. And also, oh. I think, because the domain was available. I get it. Stir, S-T-I-R with mix. I get it. I was wondering what the yeah, significance of that was. Yeah, that it's, is very clever. Uh, an inside joke at this point because the most recent movies have been Iron Man and Thor. So, you know, they, they're no longer any in any way related to Star Trek. But but uh, that, that's that's the name that's stuck. <laughs> so in this case, the uh, the website opened up for pre-registration and, and registration and, and, you know, basically buying tickets uh, a few months ago. 
And it was right around this time that I was becoming involved with the event as more than just a speaker um, and, and was invited to be part of the board for the event. And they had had some problems with opening of, uh, registrations where, you know, basically at midnight a flood of people came to the website to uh, try and, and purchase tickets. And the website didn't handle it. And so the uh, the discussion that was ongoing was, well, you know, what should we do? We need to make sure the website can handle the load. And, you know, there was some talk about, well, that's a shared hosting account. Maybe you can't handle that kind of load. Um, you know, some of the folks involved were, you know, Azure gurus that, that knew Azure inside and out. And so they were saying, well, you know, we could just take it and put it up on Azure, and then we know it'll scale. Um, and we could, you know, run some performance tests against it once we get it up on Azure uh, and, and things like that. And so I asked if I could have a look at the code because that kind of stuff uh, obviously interests me, and I was curious, you know, why it was not handling the load. Um, and I also suggested that, you know, before we move it to Azure and, and try and load test something on Azure, um, maybe it would make more sense to, you know, actually just run it on localhost and load test it and run it in a profiler there. Um, and that's that's generally the better way to go in my experience. But, um, you know, if, if a lot of the time developers go to what they know, and if they've never done profiling or performance load testing locally, but they but they know something else. They know Azure or they know SQL tuning or whatever. They'll just go to what they know, and that's that's common. I, I've found. Sure. So in this case, once I got a copy of the source code and, and ran it uh, locally, I was able to pretty quickly determine what the issue was. And in this case, it had to do with um, how many requests were being made to a uh, in Hibernate. Uh, session factory where it was creating um, a session. Mm. And I'm, oh, yeah. I'm not an Inhibernate guru, um, right. but it turns out if, if you are uh, a user of Inhibernate, you're probably aware that the uh, the Inhibernate session factory is fairly expensive when it first creates a session. Um, and so there's there's a number of uh, different approaches out there where you can you know create a session um, per web request or, or manage them on the server. Um, and, and you know, basically share them and dole them out as needed. The the key thing though is it's an expensive resource that you don't want to instantiate unless you need it. And the the way that this uh, web app was was written, it basically had a uh, a class level session uh, factory in um, each of the uh, controller classes. This was an ASP.NET MVC two application, and they were just being instantiated as part of page construction. And so even oh on pages goodness. that didn't have any data access at all, wow. there were calls to create the, the session, um, you know, session factory that create for an hibernate. And that was, that was creating a lot of extra load. And also since some of the, the pages were, were sub pages, they were using partial views or, uh, you know, things where you basically be calling from one controller to another controller. Um, those calls would also create, Additional session factory that create calls, um, and, and so you'd have you know numerous uh, data access calls that that weren't necessary um, taking place on every single web request. Yikes! And how did you find this out, Steve? Were you using method profiling? Well, yeah. The first thing I did was I I figured that maybe I could fix it all up by just adding some output caching. Mm-hmm. Um, one right. of my uh, old mentors uh, had a saying that uh, hardware hides many sins. And I've, yes. I've since come to apply that myself to say that caching hides many sins. Oh yeah. <laughs> and since this, you know, was 
was a one-time event, and it wasn't, you know, my, my full-time gig or anything. I didn't want to spend a lot of resources on it. If I could just throw some alpha caching at it and have that get us good enough performance, that's all I was going to do. Hmm. But sure. uh, as I was uh, performance uh, testing this, which I was using Visual Studio 2010's load testing features, the uh, it was just crashing IIS. So I would I would load wow. it up with like 10, 10 users hitting it as fast as they could, and within two minutes, the IIS would just pop up and say, oh, IIS uh, worker process has died. So so that was telling me that even with caching, we were we were going to be dead in the water. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, then I did use the, uh, the Visual Studio Profiler, and the Visual Studio Profiler has a peer interaction profiler. Have you used that, Richard? No, I haven't. That sounds very cool. Oh, yeah, it's a nice feature in uh, Visual Studio 2010. So what you can do is inside the profiler after you run it, uh, you basically, you know, click through your web app and, and make a few requests and then view the, the profiler output. One of the options is a tier interaction view. And you have to turn it on when you're setting up the profile to record this. But it will actually show you all of your database requests that are taking place with each request. So, for instance, nice. I could see that on our home page, we were making 40 database queries. Hmm. I could see oh, that on the page that was showing the schedule, um, of the conference that we were making 80 database queries. Wow. And, and oh, it just man. seems kind of excessive. So yeah, just uh, a little. I was able to, to use that data to, to figure out where we needed to, to tune things. Now, was your, this was using Hibernate, right? Yes. But Hibernate wasn't, wasn't the culprit here at all. Oh, and Hibernate wasn't making those calls? It was just your code? Well, yeah, I mean, our code was making those calls through Hibernate, but it was... Through it in Hibernate, yeah. I want to be clear, Hibernate wasn't having any kind of performance problems. It was just our usage of it that was the issue. Right. Obviously, it's not a matter of having the right indexes on the tables. I mean, that's pretty excessive. Right. No, I mean, so the, the main issue, the one that was the biggest, uh, the biggest gain was the fact that we were doing that session manager um, or session factory create method call way too often. You know, even yeah. when we weren't talking to the database, we were doing it. Right. Uh, ideally, you want to have that call made only once per web request. So if, if you are making you know, numerous database calls per request, which is not uncommon, uh, you just want to make right. sure if you're using in Hibernate that you're not making numerous calls to create that session factory. Um, you want to do that one time, and then you reuse that, that session factory for uh, multiple calls to the data store. So did the programmer get a dope slap? <laughs> uh, I think... You know, like I said, this is a, a community-built uh, yeah. event and site, so um, I'm not even sure which, which developers yeah. uh, were responsible for it because the site's been kind of growing over time um, with, you know, people's spare time. And, and it's like another one of the things where you, it works super fast when there's only a handful of users. Mm. It's only when you right. have a spike of traffic that you would ever notice a problem, and that's just what happened um, on opening night when we, when we started taking registrations. Wow. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. You know, the other, the other way of describing this and Hibernate session is it's like you were reconnecting to the database from scratch for every query. Uh. 
Yeah, there wasn't any sort of uh, connection caching or connection pulling going on, essentially. Right, and, and that's just that's very costly. You, and if you do it forty times in one page request, mm. no wonder you were stressing things out. Mm. Yeah, when when I looked in the profiler, uh, it, it was able to nail down that the the Fluent and Hibernate configuration build session factory was taking mm-hmm. up twenty three percent of of the total time. From my profile session. Wow. So, you know, a quarter of all the time was spent just creating the session factory, not even on the data access calls. And wow. it's not that take creating it took so long. It's that it was doing it so many times. Right. Yes, exactly. There were, in, in the course of my profile session, which was only like, you know, hitting 10 web pages, it did this 1,200 times. Oh, my God. <laughs> was this, was this, do you think, the most difficult performance problem that you ever had to debug or is there a no, worse I, one i think i led with that one the uh finding that cache dependency bug was the one that uh, had me pulling my hair out yeah because that was that was already deployed and in production and, and causing problems and i exhausted all of my my tools and ended up having to actually go to a microsoft support ticket yeah uh in order to find that one this one was actually pretty straightforward using the tools and techniques that i was already familiar with but a lot of people don't know about the profiling tools in Visual Studio or have never used the load testing tools. So, right. uh, uh, you know, it's something I, I try and share with people as much as I can. Well, and, it, and the combination there of creating a load with a load tester as well as profiling to see where you're spending your time. Right. Yeah, and that, uh, you yeah, this is a, a blog post that I got a lot of great feedback from people saying that uh, they really were, were happy to see how this, uh, this investigative work was done. Because it was a, it's a pretty simple site, and um, in this case, it's it's all static content. So um, there's no need for it to be doing massive amounts of data access to show the same thing every single request. Um, but yeah. it, but it's not uncommon for CMS style sites to to have this sort of architecture where they're talking to the database to get their content on every request. Uh, it's just a matter of of making sure that you're doing that, uh, following the acquire late, release early rule for expensive resources like the configuration uh, for an Hibernate session factory, for example. But, you know, Steve, when you've got a static site like that, you could have converted all those pages to straight HTML. Yeah. I mean, that would have been really, really fast. It's just a lot more work. Yeah, and that was on the table. That was that was a possibility. If, if I didn't find the problem, that was the uh, the one of the two options that was being considered to, to just make sure that the site was going to perform well enough. Hmm. Yeah, just yeah, get rid of the executing code that is just going to run the same thing over and over again. Yep, and it only has about 10 public-facing pages, so it wouldn't have been all that hard to do. It's just that after no. you do that, then any kind of updates are a pain. Yeah, you got to take the whole thing apart and do it over again. And, it, you know, and I'm glad to hear that when you called Microsoft Tech Support, you actually got good support. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, yeah, I was very impressed. Because that's not what we're used to, not necessarily Microsoft. Within 24 hours, they had analyzed it and shown me what the problem was with that cache dependency issue. Um, And I was, you know, I had spent like literally a week trying to track this thing down the week prior. And I was like, man, I should have just called these guys day one. I keep thinking about the oatmeals, why I'd rather be punched in the testicles than call tech support. Well, you know, the, our, most of the tech support calls that I've had to make in my life have been abysmal. So I yeah. never expected that level of service. 
I never expected if I was going to call Microsoft for a developer problem that they were actually going to connect to my machine and look at it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was cool. I've had the same experience. When you call PSS, you get real help. So what's story number three? Well, one last quick thing on the support ticket. Okay. If, uh, if you happen to have an MSDN subscription, which I know a lot of uh, your listeners do, those come with some support tickets. Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's a, a cost involved if you don't have that. But uh, if you've already got it as a benefit of your MSDN subscription, it's not something that you should uh, you know avoid at all costs. It you know if, if you're stuck, it can definitely be a, a resource to use. Good point. For sure. Okay. Story number three. So story number three, um, I was thinking I could kind of go back in time a bit and talk about uh, way back when I was first getting into ASP development and VB6 and uh, some of the things that, that we were doing then that still apply today. And sure. So in this case, this was an app that was for a call center. At the time, I was working as a consultant, and we were using VB6 com objects with classic ASP, and the... Uh, the the problem with that is that we, you know, do you remember Microsoft Transaction Server? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yes. That thing was awesome because it had a, a GUI that you could actually see these little balls spinning with your app. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, was, <laughs> Which they added at the last second because nobody could tell what the heck it was doing. <laughs> That's right. That was it's awesome because all... you could you know, you'd, you'd launch this thing and then you could watch the balls spin when your users hit the site. And it's just um, an animated icon. The uh, the problem with it was, uh, in my naivete, I thought that, you know, any kind of change to the database required a transaction because I wanted to make sure it took place, right? And so right. I was I was using transactions for, for just about everything. Um, and it turns out transactions, especially with MTS, are somewhat expensive. Uh, and so yes. performance wasn't as good as it could have been. It wasn't awful. Um, but once I realized that, you know, transactions are really only needed when you really need that that you know, set of operations to occur atomically, mm. um, you know, that, that made a big difference to the performance there. So, you know, just deciding when to use transactions made a difference. And then also the fact that COM objects are are not like C-sharp objects, which, of course, didn't exist at the time, mm. in, in terms of creation and activation. Um, they're downright expensive to create. And so one of the, uh, one of the lessons I learned low 10 years ago about using COM objects efficiently and with MTS and COM plus was that you wanted to create stateless calls. And so the, uh, one of the features that MTS provided was reuse of these objects. Yeah. But it can only do it if the method calls were stateless. Um, right. And that was, that made a huge difference in performance. At a, later on at another client, I got called in to do performance testing there and they had a, uh, it was a bunch of small talk developers that were building an architecture in VB6 COM Plus, and they built this this huge sort of unit of work style, uh, you know, workflow collaboration with literally dozens of COM objects, all all stateful and instantiated one after the other, and talking to one another. And it it crawled. It got like seven requests per second, and they were hoping for you know fifty or a hundred. Uh, and so that was that was something where basic uh, OO design patterns that worked great in Smalltalk would have worked great, I'm sure, in .NET, um, but .NET was just coming on the on the scene at the time, uh, just did not work with COM Plus because of the expensive object creation. You know where I learned about yeah, that whole heavy. stateless uh, COM object thing was uh, Rocky Lotka's Business Objects book. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that was a Bible for me. Yeah, that's the beginning of really understanding all that, too. They did a good job. Yeah. Yeah, I remember learning uh, a lot from the FM Stocks application that uh, Vertigo, Scott Stanfield's company, uh, put out. That was an awesome reference app yeah. back for uh, for ASP and Com Plus. And then uh, after that, the iBuySpy app, that was also Vertigo's, um, was a good reference app for the, the early ASP.net days. Well, Steve, we're going to end it there. It's been uh, uh, some somewhat of a short show, but, man, uh, we always love to hear stories, and especially to peer inside your mind and and uh, find out that, hey, we're not the only ones out there who are experiencing weird problems. So thanks. All right. That sounds good, Carl. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a